The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. Have another very interesting show for you today. Uh, the title is Striking the Right Balance Between Story and Design. So we're going to go back to uh, one of the recurring themes on Museum Life, and that is the, uh, the power of exhibition and the challenges of uh, creating them. Uh, and I have a wonderful guest today. Uh, some of you uh, who were at the American Alliance of Museums Conference had the uh, a great pleasure of going to the Center for Civil Rights and Human Rights uh, that has just uh, uh, opened in Atlanta, and I heard such wonderful things about how great that uh, that museum is, and I encourage all of you to take an opportunity to get down to Atlanta and see it. And so today we have uh, with us David Mandel, who is the... Uh, Director of Exhibitions at the Center for Civil and Human Rights and uh, has also had an exemplary career both inside uh, and as a, a consultant, uh, as an outsider in the museum in uh, exhibitions. And so, David, welcome to the show today. I'm so glad that you're taking the time to be with us. Thank you very much, Carol. I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk with you. Great, great. Uh, David, why don't you, uh, of course, I I gave just the barest bones of your uh, exemplary uh, career. Uh, Could you just share with us a little bit about how that career trajectory has taken off? And and also, uh, I'm always interested in, in knowing sort of the greatest influences in terms of your approach to the work you're doing today. Sure, of course. Um, well, I was fortunate enough to get my start um, at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, a uh, member of the founding staff, um, got my job there in the early 90s, um, a few years before they opened. Uh, I was a junior member of the exhibition team, did not know it when I was hired, um, and I have a background in um, history. I got a, a BA in history. Uh, when I was hired, that the people that I'd be around the table with, uh, the senior team, were all such prominent people in the world of um, museums and exhibit design. So I started there as a content coordinator and did that for a couple years. Um, that was the run-up to the opening. Once we opened, I worked visitor services for a while um, and then went back into the exhibition department at the Holocaust Museum. Uh, the 
designer of that exhibition was Ralph Applebaum Associates, and they're based in New York. So a few, uh, a little over a year after the museum opened, um, that was 1993 it opened. Um, so around 94-ish or so, um, Ralph Applebaum Associates offered me a job, and I moved up to New York City and worked for them for 10 years on a number of projects, started as a content coordinator and began, um, rose up a bit to be um, an exhibition developer there. Also was learning design on the job. I did not have, um, when I started, a design background, but um, they have an incredible team there. A number of um, my colleagues I learned quite a bit from when I was working at Ralph Applebaum Associates. So some of the projects I worked on when I was at RAA as uh, the museums, uh, the first museum, um, which was very successful. So they built a second one. Um, so uh, they closed the first and then reopened a new one on the mall in D.C. So I worked on those. I worked on the Constitution Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I worked on a couple smaller exhibits, one um, on the history of the Vietnam War um, for the New Jersey um, in Holmdale, New Jersey. I uh, worked on the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, Tennessee, um, a couple other ex exhibitions too, but um, it was a great, great experience, my 10 years there. And after that, I went on to be the director of exhibits at the New York Historical Society for a few years. I um, was fortunate enough to work on um, the History of Slavery in New York exhibition, which at the time, back in the mid-2000s, was the most heavily attended show in the history of the New York Historical Society. And then after that, I moved on down to Atlanta, um, got married. My wife is from the South. Um, she's a graphic designer, um, works at um, professor at SCAD also. So we moved down here for a job opportunity, escaped New York and such. Um, and then uh, so I also do graphic design, um, and I did that for a bit. And then I got the job at the Center for Civil and Human Rights. I've been here for four years. We opened uh, a year ago in um, 2014, June of 2014. And uh, yeah, that's very quickly an overview of my my. Um, resume. Well, that, thank you uh, for sharing that with us. And I, I, you know, what I hear in uh, in that history is is uh, a thread that I think runs through many of our uh, careers. Those of us who are museum professionals is that we may have started in one area. We you know, get a degree in something from college, and and that we may or not be informed to think that that will get us a job. But then we. We take jobs, we do jobs, and we keep learning. And and if I remember correctly, you also went back to school to uh, study a little bit of graphic design. Isn't that true? That's yes, that's correct. When we moved on down to Atlanta, I went to the Portfolio Center too. I mean, I, I got a real love of design during the course of my um, experience working at the Holocaust Museum, and then work, especially working at Ralph Applebaum Associates. Um, just the the designers I met there, um, just the some exceptionally talented people with, um, from disciplines such as graphic design, but also um, industrial design and architecture. It just really opened my eyes to a world that I just, when I was younger, didn't know much about. So it, it put the, the bug in me for design. Um, so yes, um, I learned on the job a bit, but then um, formalized it when I got down to Atlanta. Great, great. Um, so I what uh, what were some of the uh, special um, uh, criteria that, that drew you to the uh, Civil Rights Museum? Yeah, but I'm sorry. I think you also asked about my influences. So I'm, I'm oh, I'll I do did, that yes. Now. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay, I apologize. Sure. I, didn't, I didn't talk no about worries. that. But, um, I mean, I've been very fortunate when I look back at some of my work experiences that just there were some really great people that I was around, um, that I, colleagues or, or just, you know, consultants or people in passing. So when I was working at the Holocaust Museum, Shaika Weinberg, who was the founding director, was an enormous influence on the way he approached 
I guess, storytelling and, and museums and exhibitions. Um, he really pioneered, um, I came to learn, a, a narrative approach to telling historical exhibitions. So that's kind of what I, I you know, learned from. So that 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 is a personality as a, as a you know someone who had a real vision for how he wanted to tell a three-dimensional story um, was really a, a big influence on my on the way I looked at things um, also the designers at Ralph Applebaum Associates from from Ralph himself who was you know was around the table with him for a number of years on the Holocaust Museum and also some of the people that he um, that work with him such as Chris Maselli who's an associate there and a senior designer who was uh, my boss when I went up to RAA um, was just an exceptionally talented designer that I had just learned a lot from watching him do what he did. Um, and then people, when I was in New York Historical Society, you know, I worked on exhibitions there that some of them were more traditional art exhibits, which um, I had, you know, when I, up until then I hadn't done as much of, but so someone like Linda Ferber, who was the director of the museum when I was there, who has a, you know, is an art historian, a, a prominent art historian in, in the New York um, you know, the, the Hudson School paintings and Thomas Cole, and it was just a, amazing to, to see a real scholar approach the content and the way you could work in the, that into the stories. So, um, you know, currently, when I get to the to the Civil Rights Exhibit, the museum that I'm at now is um, there are a few people, such as George C. Wolfe, the Broadway director, who's won Tony Awards for bringing the noise, bringing the funk, and angels in America who was the chief creative officer for the Center for Civil and Human Rights Exhibitions. He was an enormous influence, too. Yes, and I'm, and I'm glad you uh, brought that, that up because it, uh, that is very unique to bring in that kind of content um, expert, uh, um, perhaps guiding light, uh, who is completely outside of the museum profession. But I, as you and I've talked before, I think that there probably is quite a bit of uh, crossover and similarity between um, uh, theater and exhibitions. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, the, the bit I've learned, I mean, I, you know, seeing how George approached what he wanted to accomplish, I, I got a richer appreciation for the drama and theater that one can bring to telling a certain story. So without a doubt that that is true. Well, they, and and I was thinking in a in a much more uh, pedestrian way that they are they're they are storytelling in three dimensions, and sure. uh, okay. yep. there's there's a great deal uh, that can be be gained from that. And I I often feel that as museum professionals, we have a tendency to uh, look to each other for inspiration and to other exhibition designers and other museums, which is fabulous. We sometimes forget that there are kindred spirits outside of our field that where we could draw inspiration. And it sounds as if that's what you, uh, uh, so much of your career was from, uh, from working at the Holocaust museum on up. Yeah, no, that's absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, so at the Holocaust Museum, Sheikha Weinberg had a, a, a diverse background before he went into to exhibitions, and one of that, one of those areas was drama and theater. He was involved in some theater companies in Israel, where he was from. So he brought that kind of a perspective. I mean, I've, as you're and thinking a bit about some of my past projects, I mean, the Constitution Center in Philadelphia, some of the planning meetings initially had Supreme Court justices around the table. Um, Antonin Scalia was there. Stephen Breyer was there. So you had the, you know, the exhibition team and you had the client. I, again, I worked for Applebaum at the time, but you had these content experts. Now, they, they only attended a few planning meetings. They weren't 
you know, deeply immersed in the day-to-day, but to be around the table to hear their thoughts about how do you tell the story of the Constitution to um, a general public. I mean, that type of, I mean, incredible expert in the field just to have some access to is just really important. Um, The museums, I mean, they had such a great collection of journalists who worked for the museum that would be involved in it. So it's this ability to bring these people from, you know, like as you're saying, outside the traditional way of looking at things is incredibly helpful in opening up, I think, different opportunities in how museum people and exhibit designers approach what they're trying to accomplish. I want to, uh, we will have, have time later in the show to talk about this idea of, you know, sort of bringing the right people uh, around the table and then perhaps even talking a little bit about the challenges of creating uh, a shared vocabulary and understanding when you do have people from such diverse backgrounds. But before we do that, uh, I think it, it would be helpful to have a little bit more grounding in um, the background of the current uh, Center for Civil and Human Rights. You know, so, uh, as you've already mentioned, you had uh, a Broadway director in the mix. What, uh, you know, what were some of the uh, goals and, and uh, objectives for the uh, center? Great. So um, the center um, came to be, uh, it got its origins um, with the election of um, former Mayor Shirley Franklin, who's the center's current board chair. Um, the story goes, I, I wasn't around then, but the story is passed on that um, within a couple months of her being elected and there are term limits in Atlanta, so mayors can be elected for two, two, two terms and then, then they're out. Um, so a few months into her first term, um, a couple civil rights movement veterans, icons, Joseph Lowry, um, Evelyn Lowry and Andrew Young came to, to Mayor Franklin independently and said that they felt there was a need to tell uh, the civil rights history of Atlanta um, in a kind of a foot soldiers for freedom perspective, kind of the general movement um, perspective to telling the story. So um, Shirley Franklin said something to the effect of like, um, I, I, you're all important people with an enormous history of um, the civil rights work. Um, I'll, I'll look into it. Um, she said something like she didn't know much about museums and exhibits, but they, they, she'd look into it. So that really began a planning study period where they brought on some um, feasibility study experts and people to look into how that would happen. Um, two events really moved the process forward. It started then, and I think they began some fundraising, but um, in about 2005, 2006, uh, the King Estate put up for sale the King Papers collection, and they went to auction at Sotheby's. Um, and there was a real risk that the papers would be leaving Atlanta. Um, Mayor Franklin, in 10 days, raised an enormous sum of money from business and philanthropic interests in Atlanta, purchased the papers. They, so they stay in Atlanta. Um, part of that purchase is that the, one of the gallery spaces at the Center for Civil and Rights and Human Rights would be able to display a selection of those papers. It's about 15,000-plus pieces, mainly documents, but a bit of ephemera. Um, they live permanently at the AUC Woodruff Library here in Atlanta. That's where researchers, scholars, historians would go to engage with the papers. But our gallery is the, the main public venue for the general population to, to come and engage with Dr. King's papers. Papers. So that really moved the project forward. And then um, the Coca-Cola Corporation, a 
donated the land. Um, we're in the heart of the downtown tourist district in Atlanta. So when they donated the land, um, they were looking for a place to put the museum um, that Coke very generously den donated that land, and then the project really took off. So um, I've been on board for four years. The exhibit development process started before me, but when I got on board, that we started to bring on the design team, um, and it was about a three-year um, Develop, design development and fabrication installation period opening in June of 2014. So that's a little bit of a history of the project. Um, again, the main emphasis was to tell the story of um, Atlanta and civil rights. Um, Shirley Franklin had the idea on a couple other of the early planners to combine that with human rights um, to give a grounding in Atlanta's history and, and civil rights. Um, it's such a part of the city here. Uh, and then also how to take some of those things that were learned, lessons learned, some of the work that was done in the civil rights sphere and move that forward into the human rights sphere. So we have an exhibition on the global human rights movement. Um, so that was you know, something a little different from other civil rights museums that you find in the Southeast which has been really, really wonderful for us. And then just, I mean, personally, having worked on a number of exhibits, that pairing of the two topics has just made a real synergy in an exciting way. So um, it helps us tell a, you know, a history of the past, make some connections to issues and people in the human rights sphere, and move that story forward. So, um, so the way the project was structured here in Atlanta once we got on board was um, we had George, who's been on board of the project before, before I was here. Um, he is the, was the curator also for the Civil Rights Exhibit, but the chief creative officer who helped review other things that were taking place within the building exhibits and add to that. Jill Savitt is a human rights um, activist. She's based in New York City, uh, specialist in genocide and genocide prevention. Um, she was great to work with, and she's the one who crafted the um, story for the human rights exhibit. And then the King Papers Gallery, I mentioned we were at the gallery where we can um, show a collection, a rotating collection of the papers. Uh, we were very fortunate, again, to have um, as a consultant um, Professor Claiborne Carson uh, from Stanford, who was also um, handpicked by Coretta Scott King to be the editor of the King Papers. So he helped us shape the initial show for the King Papers Gallery. So those were some of the, the storytellers, non-traditional storytellers, or the storytellers for it. Uh, the exhibition design firm that was hired to do the, the, um, the exhibit spaces was the Rockwell Group based in New York City. Um, David Rockwell, his colleague Barry Richards, um, Alan Tokmakoff, um, Amanda Zychik were some of the people we worked with on that project. Um, they were great. Um, the Rockwell Group had done one large museum previously and I think some smaller exhibitions, but I think this was one of their um, bigger exhibits to, to work on. Um, you know, they, they're a multidisciplinary design firm um, doing lots of work in restaurants and hotels and casinos and Broadway and, and, and um, Hollywood. Uh, so it was it was again they were a bit of I mean not non-traditional exactly but they were a little bit of a, a different pick um, when we were looking at exhibit design firms and it really really turned out to be great um, filmmakers that we brought on to work with us Batwin and Robin um, based in New York City they um, do some work with George on his Broadway plays they were really exceptionally talented filmmakers um, again a great great group to work with um, and then D&P based in um, Lorton Virginia did the exhibition um, fabrication and installation, and they were great. So and then we had some other writers and historians involved in the process, but um, those were some of the main players working on the exhibitions. That's great. Thank you. That gives us, I think, a really good grounding uh, to now dig into some of the uh, 
uh, both the challenges and opportunities and processes uh, that you used uh, to to make this uh, wonderful project come together and work with all of these very interesting and unique personalities. But before we do that, we are going to take our first of two breaks. And when we come back, uh, more with David Mandel and striking the right balance between design and story. Uh, so stay tuned. We will be right back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Are you ready for an Anything Goes hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, The Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, uh, and I'm here today with David Mandel, who is the Director of Exhibitions and Design at the Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, Georgia, that just opened uh, a little over a year ago. And before we went to break, David did a wonderful job of painting a picture uh, for us of the uh, people who were involved in the project, uh, from traditional exhibition designers uh, to Broadway producers and experts in the fields of uh, human rights and civil rights as well as uh, experts in knowing the uh, papers of Martin Luther King. 
And uh, David, so this is very has provided a really good backdrop, I think, to talk a little bit uh, more about what that is really like. Obviously, you had a, a huge amount of creative talent uh, around the table, so to speak. Uh, but everyone came from such you know very different backgrounds. So. How how did you ensure that everybody was sort of speaking the same language and uh, and under and obviously being respected for what they brought to the table, but also understanding how to talk to each other? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I the the I some of the people with diverse backgrounds had a very refined visual sensibility, um, maybe not as much experience working in certain aspects of a three-dimensional environment. But um, they, I mean, they're were, they were very smart people, and, and some of them had experience that was somewhat similar, if not exactly like doing an exhibit. So it, it didn't take a lot for them to pick up on the, the vernacular that the design team was using. I mean, we just there's there were some very strong personalities involved as there are with many many projects. Um, and so myself and our, our former CEO Doug Shipman, um, we're, we're the main client um, representatives at the in the process and at the table. And like I'd say, halfway through the three year process, we were coming back from a meeting in New York and we were just chatting about how well the team meshed. And you know, I I can't. Give you. I wish I could give you a formula for that aspect of it. Um, we've I've thought about it a bit too, but there was just for this project a coming together of smart, talented people that were able, with the quality of the work that was being generated, could all find themselves in the process in a way that didn't provide. You know, there wasn't a lot of, you know egos clashing. There wasn't a lot of, you know, this isn't working. Why isn't it working? There was just something about the high level of design talent and storytelling talent and the people who with the experience who've done this process before that it was just managed in a way that that, that really um, everybody enjoyed the process. I mean, I, I know there was on the Rockwell team side, there were some people um, who were not actively around the table, but were, you know, knew about how processes like this would go. And um, some of the people I worked with day to day at the Rockwell team said that team, those people, their colleagues who weren't actively involved were saying like, so when's, when's it going to get difficult? When are the, when are the bumps in the road really going to hit? When are there going to be, you know, the, the arguments and, you know, any kind of yelling or whatever. And, you know, there really wasn't because of just, I think, you know, that again, that high level design, and high level of storytelling talent that was coming together in a nice way, but just also there was something about the vibe on this project that really made people get along. People got along. People liked each other. I, you know, I, I wish there was a formula for it to be able to happen again and again. But um, so, so that's a little, you know, a bit just about what it was like around in the table. But I mean, I think more concretely, and, and maybe more helpfully for those, you know, who, who work in similar fields that. There, there was a process that was very clearly established. Um, there was a process from the, you know, the concept design to the design development, and, and within each of those phases, the storytelling aspect was so prominent. I mean, I, I've worked on a number of projects where if you don't have, um, you know, if you have a high level of storytelling and a high level of design, you can do something really special. I'm biased, but if you're in Atlanta, come take a look. I think we've done something special. But if you have a high level of storytelling and you don't have a high level of 
design, you might have something with a lot of emotion and feeling, but it doesn't get effectively communicated. If you have something, you have a project where you have a high level of design and maybe not as high level of storytelling, it's going to look cool, it's going to look slick, but it's going to lack heart and soul. So, I mean, the process that we had in place allowed the storytellers, allowed George Wolf, allowed Jill Savitt, the space and time with whatever feedback they needed from us initially to develop what they wanted that story to be um, and, 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 to certain, and certain ideas, conceptual ideas of how that story should be. And then when we got into some of these design development meetings, you know, it really meshed well with, um, you know, the, the design talent around the table from the Rockwell Group side. So, I mean, one case in point, George really wanted, George Wolf really wanted to tell the story of Jim Crow laws. Now, there's obviously many ways you could tell it, but the design, conceptual design idea that the, the team came up with was to use the visual vocabulary, the vernacular of um, transit depots back in the era of segregation. So um, bus station or train station tickers where they would, you know, tick and spin, these trilons would spin. So that's the design solution, the three-dimensional design solution that came up with, let's do something on Jim Crow laws. So when you come into the gallery, you have the ability to push a button and it makes the ticker board spin, the trilon spin, and what you get is you get some um, photographs of the signage during the era of segregation. So things that said colored entrance or white entrance or theaters where it said colored entrance or taxi cabs that said white only. Um, and then you also had listings, a selected listing of the actual Jim Crow laws that were on the books in many of the southern states. So you could find out, you know, that if there were books that had been used in a, um, uh, an African-American school, those textbooks could never be used in a white school. Um, you know, so many different types of laws to get a sense of like just the, the, the horrible nature of the, the laws that were on the books in, many, in, a, in almost all the southern states. So that's the design solution to a, a, um, a storytelling conceptual idea that came out. And that, so that plays out in that process, in the concept design process and the design development process. And it was just, you know, people getting along and then just, a, you know, one small example of how a conceptual design idea, you know, made its way into a three-dimensional built environment. Thank you, David. That's an excellent uh, example, and and I too wish that you could uh, either figure out the perfect formula or you know sort of bottle the pheromones that were around that table because, uh, as you and I both know, that you get a group of exhibition designers or interpretive planners uh, in a room together, and particularly if there's a little wine involved, um, you know, all of the horror stories come out, and it's uh, and and it can be very uh, defeating, but it sounds to me as if, you know, you had the right people around the table. It also seems to me that you had a lot of mature people around the table, uh, um, experienced in their craft, uh, individual craft, uh, having a sense of accomplishment, and knowing how to uh, manage creative differences. And of course, you know, you didn't say that everything just hummed along perfectly. There probably were differences of opinions, but there's a way that that can be uh, discussed um, productively and ways that it can't. And I'm wondering if at times in some of these museum projects where, you know, we all, you know, people are, are telling, you know, this was horrible or that didn't work, or as you said, even your colleagues in the Rockwell group were saying, okay, so when's the honeymoon over? Um, you know, maybe that is when uh, the uh, project is, is undercapitalized and uh, the right 
uh, caliber of people are not allowed uh, to be around the table, either because they don't exist uh, or because there, there are just too many constraints and, you know, you count noses and you say the project can't afford uh, that many, uh, uh, that much creative input. Is that, um, have, have you ever experienced anything like that? I have, I have. It's just you know, I I look at myself as an exhibit mechanic. I, I know how to get from A to Z. Um, I know you know there's different ways to get from A to Z, um, but I know when things are going in the correct direction, when things aren't. So yeah, I mean, so that, I mean that when we were on the table for this project, I mean yeah, there were um, digressions. There were, were things where we you know had conversations, but. You know, it was always about how to get it right and make it better. Um, so there was an open atmosphere to discuss things. I mean, obviously, decisions have to be made. Um, but there was just, you know, that, that atmosphere and then just, you know, the, the, I was a mechanic that knew how to, you know, get you from here to there and, and could manage some of the, the parts of the process right was helpful. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there have been projects where I've been on where, you know, maybe there wasn't as strong a vision um, developed initially for what the story was and a bit of the ideas of how to go about doing it. I, I think in some areas where there's that some of that uncertainty, um, where maybe you don't have someone who know, has a vision for it, um, there is that, um, within that uncertainty that could, could arise, there is the potential for some of the, the uh, to go off in a ditch a bit. Um, so I, I've seen that a bit. You know, you do your best to manage what, what, what the, the people that you're working, you know, work with the process and the people that you have. Um, but yeah, that, that can definitely happen. It's just, you know, I'm, again, fortunate that, you know, for a project like this, that was not a problem. We had very, very um, um, strong visions for how this should be from the, the storytelling team initially. Well, and I, I, I think I would be remiss if I, if I also didn't point out, you know, often, you know, exhibit designers, um, uh, uh, you know, outside consultants are not the only ones that tell horror stories. Uh, I, having worked in inside museums, as you have, uh, there are also our colleagues who will uh, talk about the horror stories of working with an exhibit design firm or an outside firm or all those frustrations. And I, and I do sometimes feel that exhibit uh, designers, particularly outside uh, firms, are put in an unfair position of being brought into a project to make all the perfect solutions and make it perfect without a lot of input. And that yeah. uh, that certainly is is uh, you you uh, as the client representative were also uh, very strong in uh, representing the organization. So I think that that uh, perhaps that's a a lesson that we might all take away from that and uh, uh, help some some other of, of our colleagues understand that uh, strength is a virtue in this uh, yeah. in this regard. <laughs> yeah, I mean from the from the you know the. You know the historian side of the table, the story. What, however, the curator. I mean, I guess I use now language more of storytelling than curator curation. But you know, for those that you know, again, I've worked on a few art shows, but most of mine have been um, exhibits have been um, historical shows. Um, that the vision from that side of the table or from those people, it just that you know, the successful design in my experience and in my opinion comes from 
organically comes from strong content, wherever that content comes from. So if you're about to embark on some type of project like that, the ability to bring as much and as rich and as layered an amount of information to a design firm is invaluable, absolutely invaluable. I mean, one, one point with the, the human rights exhibit here at the center in Atlanta is um, we had we reached out through Jill Sabat's um, connections in the human rights world. Um, there are amazing organizations that content partnered with us: Human Rights, Human Rights Watch, Human Rights First, um, Amnesty International USA, uh, Minority Rights Group International, Freedom House. I mean, so through connections in the human rights world, which I, I didn't know anything about or very little about before I started this project, when we reached out to them and talked to them about what we were going to do and some of our concepts and direct design directions. I mean, the enthusiasm from these organizations, I mean, incredibly smart, incredibly hardworking people who are out, you know, some of them are, you know, activists who are out the front lines, you know, in the human rights sphere, putting themselves at great personal risk. I mean, we feature some people in the exhibit who are currently in jail, um, a human rights activist in Russia who was put in jail by... Um, before the, the Sochi Olympics. I mean, so there are people out there, um, you know, who, who are doing this incredible human rights activist work. They were excited about us because they don't really have a brick-and-mortar place for people to go and see their stories. So when we reached out to them via Chill, the enthusiasm was enormous. So that enthusiasm, that amount of, you know, stories, content, information that they were able to provide, provide the team, provide, you know, working with Chill, you know, it's just a real, it was a real, uh, you know, I think think a real benefit, a real joy for the designers because you're not looking for what the story is. It's like how do you sort through so much, so many incredibly compelling stories to find how you want to convey it. And I, I've been on projects where maybe it's been a little unclear at the beginning, maybe it's the storytelling or the, the content has been a little thinner, and, and you're absolutely right. That puts an enormous challenge on, on design firms from the outside because they, they don't, you know, they, they know design, they might not necessarily know the topics. Right, right. Well, and, and, you know, another term that comes to mind, and it's, I hesitate to use it because it's, it has become, you know, overused to, uh, you know, trivialize it a bit, but this, this, uh, the word is authenticity. And it's, uh, in, in, if this was a science project, if we were scientific researchers, we would say that we were we were going to primary sources. We're going to the people, as, as you've just uh, described, who really know the stories, as opposed to uh, having to rely on secondary sources, which might be, say, uh, someone, a journalist, who wrote about someone. And it might, you know, that still might be good content, but it isn't... It doesn't give the design team the nuance that perhaps would uh, provide that that design spark, as yeah. you you know sort of describe for the uh, for for the pylons. Um, we have a couple of minutes before break, and I just um, I want to ask. Uh, just using that pylon story, um, how how do you sort of get the right interpretive medium uh, for you know to support the narrative? I mean, is you know is that a, again just part of the the art of the craft? It's definitely that um, you know, but again, it goes back to the storyline and sitting with the uh, you know the with um, the curators, the storytellers about um, and you know the designers. Of, 
you know, leading that conversation as to how you tell that story. So obviously, we all have fixed budgets, and there's a certain amount that you can do with the money that you have. So we had to be very focused um, in what we were for this project and how we wanted to use the right mix of, of media and technology in telling the story. So those trilons for the Jim Crow laws, um, you know, were, it's a, there's a lot of engineering DNP who, who, who were tasked with, with, with building the guts of it and did a great job. Um, so the cost a little bit, but not an enormous amount um, in the scheme of things. But, you know, the way we brought in the filmmaking with Batwin and Robin, the way we brought in the interactives, which were done by Second Story, um, that's where, you know, George and Jill would, would say, look, you know, I want to tell this story and here it is, and here's some of the content for it. Let's talk about the best way for doing it. Sometimes George had a very clear idea of how he wanted to do it. Sometimes there was a little more open for the design team to, to come in and say it, and, and, and same with Jill. Um, so there is one for the Human Rights Exhibit. There is this uh, When you come into the, the, the beginning of the Human Rights Gallery, this the one way we use technology, um, and this was one of our more immersive technological components, was um, these screens, these um, um, reflective um, surfaces, mirror-like surfaces. When you walked in, it would see your you would see your reflection of yourself, but also projected behind it um, on a monitor behind it would be a person moving um, about life size, um, but they wouldn't say anything, but they were moving. So when you got close, there would be a camera that would read your presence and would cue up the experience. This person would come up and begin to tell you their story, um, and you learn, um, based on some descriptor words that are on these screens that you can touch and pull up, um, the, the person, the different types of people that, are, are, um, that could talk to you, um, there would be a word like um, Christian or Muslim or gay or woman um, and then or disabled you touch that word and this person would, who ha shared that trait, had that trait, would tell you their story and you'd find out um, in the course of a minute to a minute and a half um, that somewhere around the world they were persecuted for that trait. So we were trying to make a connection between people who have just, you know, come in to see an exhibit on human rights and might not know what human rights are um, in, a, in a big and small way um, to make this personal connection using an immersive technology. So we spent a fair amount of money to do that type of interactive technology because it made sense to try to make this connection to visitors who might have just come from one of the, there are a couple other um, venues near, located near the Center for Civil and Human Rights. Um, if they come from one of those venues, how do you move them into this world of human rights? So that was a way where we thought about the monies we had, the story we wanted to tell, and the ability um, with interactives, and the Second Story team was great in, in working with us to, to come up with what this could be um, to, to, to make that kind of an experience at the beginning great. of that gallery. Good, good. That's a wonderful example, and I want to drill down into that a little bit more when we come back from break. But we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, more with uh, David Mandel and uh, Balancing Design and Story. So please stay tuned. Remember, you can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net or send me a tweet at, at newswrite. Uh, I'm always interested in hearing from uh, people who are listening and letting me know what you think about the show and uh, what topics we should be covering next. So stay tuned. We will be back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. 
Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success, no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and as you know, I've been having a wonderful conversation with David Mandel about uh, his experiences as an exhibit designer, as well as some of the special activities and decisions that were made at the uh, Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. And David, before we went on break, you gave us a wonderful example of a way that uh, story and design can come together to um, uh, immerse audience in uh, the topic, you know, sort of give them that transition from, you know, being on the street and uh, now focusing on the, uh, on the content and the stories at hand. I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, because of the, your breadth uh, and depth of experience, uh, what changes or trends have you observed in uh, the way we approach exhibition design, um, you know, sort of over your career? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, technology plays in a, you know an important role in um, developments and and what you can do. Um, so I've, through the course of twenty five years or so, I've seen that move um, in a in a direction where, you know, it's, it offers enormous opportunities and possibilities, which are wonderful. Um, also, expectations from your audiences and your visitors who, who want a certain level of of interactivity. Um, I, I mean, on the whole, it's all a positive to me, but I just see it as another, you know, it's always been a, a tool in your toolkit, and now it's maybe a bigger tool in the toolkit, but it's still just a, a means to telling a story. I mean, I just I go back to it again and again, because that's just what, succeed, in my experience, succeeds. So, um, you know, at the again, use an example of where I'm now, where I work now, the the center. I mean, you know, with all the advances in technology, and I mentioned, you know, a couple instances where they were a little more involved, the interactives, the experience. I mean, 
on a low tech end, we um, have art to try. We use art to help tell the story. So we were, again, fortunate to engage with some exceptionally talented people, um, two of them being Platon, a photographer based in New York City, who's um, the house photographer for New Yorker magazine. Um, You've seen his covers on Time magazine and Rolling Stone and things like that over the years. Um, He's taken a lot of amazing portraits. He's an incredibly talented photographer. But he does a lot of human rights work. Um, so we found out about him through Human Rights Watch, and um, he liked us and we liked him. And he did this amazing 36-foot-long um, permanent, install, permanent installation photo mural of human rights activists and, human rights, and victims of human rights crimes that spans the wall on our third floor mezzanine. So this is obviously – it's a – most incredible photography, um, but it, in a sense, it's low tech that way because there's no screens or monitors or, or anything like that. That's been incredibly compelling storytelling. Um, also, in our, our lobby, when you come in and you enter the building on the second floor, on the second floor lobby, um, Paula Shear, the designer at Pentagram, has a friendship with George. And um, George was able to get her to work on the project for us. She did this amazing um, mural, um, a mashup of protest posters in the 20th century with an upraised protest arm. So it's become an icon of the the building and the exhibits. So that's those are two, you know, low tech ways of telling the story that but have proven to be incredibly emotional, incredibly powerful uh, because. The people who made them are exceptionally talented, the, the best in their fields. So we were, again, very fortunate to have that. So that's on the you know, lower end of technology, but still incredibly compelling. So, I mean, as a way to you know, give a rounded-out answer to the question, technology is great. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing tool, um, but it doesn't mean – it's, it's not a, a – um, it's not – it, it can it should not serve as and I'm sure many people would agree is is a, a substitute for for the storytelling the content um, the the heart and soul of what you're trying to accomplish in your communicating in your communications uh, of an exhibit and exhibits are really you know three dimensional visual communications it shouldn't that's where you start and then you bring in that technology to help tell it you and the decisions you make for for murals and art or or the, for you know touchscreen monitors and interactive tables and games and things like like that. I mean, that's all all part of the mix, but it's um, you know, it's a great advancement, but it, it shouldn't be a substitute for for the storytelling. I think you uh, you have expressed that uh, very very well, and I I hope that uh, all listeners will take this podcast and share it with their uh, the groups that that they're working with. Um, it I are do do you have any concerns then about how you see where museums are headed? I mean, clearly you have a very uh, logical approach to your design work, but as you look at other museums, uh, do you ever walk into a museum and think, oh my God, did they just take everything in the technology toolbox and throw it at this museum? I mean, yeah. I mean, just like, I guess any person who's worked in a certain field for a long enough time, I mean, I can't go into a museum or an exhibit and not kick the tires on it. So I have to try to focus that out from, you know, being able to enjoy what's there because lots of people do lots of good things. Um, but yeah, there, there is a tendency to, and again, I think some of it's driven also by expectations for audiences. You know, you need a certain amount of the bells and whistles, um, technological bells and whistles. So, I mean, that, that drives it. I mean, as trends go, I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, 
I feel most comfortable talking about exhibits. You know, I've worked for three museums now, um, so I know the museum world a bit, but I don't, I'm not really a, a museum professional that way, at least not in, I think, my area of knowledge. So, you know, I'm working for a new startup museum, and I think the stories that we're telling and the ways we're telling it are in an interesting way. Um, but, you know, there's a couple great institutions also in Atlanta. The High Museum does some great, great exhibits. I mean, some of the more traditional art shows, but still great. But, you know, I, I, when I look at exhibits and, and museums, I, I look for how well has an immersive environment been crafted, and, and that can be many different things. So um, if that's a trend, I and I see it sometimes. Um, I don't see it in, at other times um, because I guess different institutions have different goals. Well, yes. Let's just um, what? How do you define an immersive experience then, or immersive environment? Yeah. So I mean, it's a, a built three-dimensional environment, um, but it, it could be simple um, to where you. You know, like um, an example for the, there was a, a few years back at the High was a traveling exhibit on the um, the, ter- the Chinese terracotta soldiers. Um, so I, I know it went around the country, around the world. So I don't know if you've had a chance to see it, but um, this is a few years back now, uh, within the last seven years, six years, I think. Uh, I mean, they had a number of things setting up that show when you wa- walked into the initial galleries. You need to provide that context, but the main main move from an environmental, immersive environmental standpoint, in my opinion, was they just had row upon row of these incredible soldiers that filled the gallery. I don't remember exactly how many, but it had to have been like like 30 to 50 or something like that. And the sculpture, I mean, you just could not be, I mean, it was sculptural, obviously, and that was this incredible experience when I walked into that space. I, I remember it vividly still, walking around those soldiers and looking at them. They were, I mean, individually, they were amazing. When you learn the history of how old they are and what they meant, I mean, it was incredible. But just from standing in a room and seeing this massing of these incredible sculptures was just incredibly immersive, resonates. I mean, and, and if you can do something like that, um, like they did, it makes a visitor, I think, really, if you can make that emotional, aesthetic connection, then you have incredible educational and intellectual opportunities to, to help tell a story, to help educate, to help inspire, things like that. So that's just one traveling show, which I thought was really great. I mean, from a, the motorcycle show at the Guggenheim when I used to live in New York a few years back, um, that, to me, I mean, I guess some people critique that show, but I always thought that was pretty incredible. I mean, obviously, the building itself is architecture. It's beautiful architecture. But the way the motorcycles were around it, and as you worked your way down or worked your way up, I mean, it's just incredible. That, to me, is another way of an immersive environment. Um, so things like that, and which can be more low-tech. Uh, there was an exhibit I saw a few years back at Chicago's Contemporary Art Museum on Calder, Alexander Calder, and they just, um, just suspended from the ceiling a number of his pieces. And you walked into this gallery, and you just see these suspended pieces. So that was, you know, it took a, obviously a bit of effort, but it was lower-tech, because um, I, I believe, um, you know, this was a few years back, but not that long ago. I mean, there wasn't a monitor. There wasn't an interactive to engage with. I just felt like, in a way, to make this space something unique and memorable, that was an incredible design move, um, which, you know, you you can do certain things with more technology, but these were a simpler way to do it, but still makes an immersive environment. I mean, a, a simple way of saying an immersive environment to me is, do I walk into a lobby, do I walk into a gallery, and do I just feel like I've been transported a bit in some, any way, that to me begins that immersive experience. And to me, that is so key to making a successful exhibition or even successful, I guess, you know, public space um, from an architectural standpoint. 
That is, uh, thank you very much for that and, and for giving those examples. I think, uh, in my experience, I have found that term uh, you know, um, immersive uh, to sometimes not be as clearly defined. And uh, I think there are some, some uh, often uh, assumptions made that immersive means you know, that, that you have to recreate Beijing to, uh, uh, to create the context for the soldiers. Uh, and what I think I'm hearing you say uh, particularly if the, if the litmus test is just is is transformation, then you've provided enough space for the uh, visitor to use their own imagination and transport themselves. Yeah, I mean exactly right. And I just you know the projects I've worked on obviously have informed my taste and sensibility. But I'm very wary just of recreating an environment. You know, just like you know make it look like you know the room that was back whenever or something like that. I'm I'm. I, I just there's real risks I think involved in that way to be so I mean it can be done it can be done successfully but I'm just a little wary of it because it's it's expected um, in some ways and if it's expected what are you doing to make it more interesting or more compelling what do you bring in so is there another more creative way potentially to do something like that but not just build the room where some great event took place or something like that. Thank you very much. I think that that uh, is very, very helpful. And David, it has been a real pleasure having you on the show today. I'd like to mention um, to my listeners and remind them that uh, if you're interested in this conversation about exhibition design, I would recommend that you uh, listen to the interview that uh, I did with Tim McNeil on October 3rd of last year. Uh, that also sort of gives some uh, framework for this topic. Uh, and also stay tuned um, in late July. I'm going to be talking with Claire Brown, a uh, professor at the Corcoran uh, Museum of Design. And so I think that, that we can continue to uh, uh, drill down into a topic that is incredibly important uh, to all of us. David, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Until then, uh, thank you for listening. This is Carol Bossert. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.